so um, one of the things I wanted to start us out with this session uh, is just a framework that I think is helpful overall in thinking about some of the difficult passages in scripture. Um, it is not the only, I mean, clearly, none of these are the only way to look at scripture, but I think it's, it's, it's a helpful way to think about some of these passages. Um, and that is essentially through the lens of trauma. So I'm going to name, I am not a trauma expert. Um, I'm going to say just a little bit about trauma, but I do want to give a little, just trigger warning. I'm not going to say anything particularly deep, but I um, want to name that I'm going to say a few things about that. And then we'll look at a, a couple of scriptures to, to, think, to think about this. Um, so I've said on Sunday before that every word of scripture was either written under or influenced by uh, empire. Uh, and when we think about that, I would place, I would think about that in kind of two ways. So one is direct violent coercion, um, direct, you know, written in the context of direct violent force, or written in the context of coercive influence. Um, so considering that, I think, gives us an opening to, to think about uh, what it means to think about violence in these texts. Um, so a little bit uh, of background here. So, okay, so a couple of things I'm going to talk through. Um, so one, I've, I think I've noted this on Sunday, if you haven't heard me say this, I think it's super important to think about the role of power in scripture uh, and these six empires that are influencing um, all of scripture um, at some point. So Egypt, uh, and then you get into Assyria and Babylon and then Persia and Greece and Rome. Obviously, when we're talking about the New Testament, we're talking about, not obviously, I'm sorry, but when we're talking about the New Testament, we're talking about Rome. Um, if you want to think about kind of the intersection of all of these empires, the book of Isaiah um, is essentially parts of that book are written under three empires, Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. So this issue of what it means to uh, live under coercive power, often violent power, is deeply embedded in the text. And as an aside, I just wanted to note that there's always, in scripture, I love scripture because there are so many counterpoints. So there's a counter narrative also about how to use power. And kind of a central question there is what does it mean to be a covenant community instead of to be a community of coercive power? So what does it mean to have power? What does it mean to use it well, particularly in a world where power is often violent and coercive? Um, before I say anything else, um, I'll note just that Assyria is one of the most, I don't want to go into the history of this too much, but Assyria was one of the most brutal and violent empires the world had known at the time. So again, that influences how people are um, are writing, you know, Babylon, essentially the destruction of Jerusalem under Babylon um, in 586, the destruction of the temple. Um, the temple was the heart of people's kind of psychic understanding of the world, the Jewish psychic understanding of the world. So the, the destruction of it was identity crushing. So you get those kinds of moments throughout the history. Uh, and that, that's the history, that, that history is the background of our scriptures. Um, so the, the question is kind of like, what, what role might have these traumatizing disasters play? Like, how might they come out in the text? How might they need to be considered? How might trauma need to be considered um, when we're talking? And I'll say, 
I don't think that you need to, you know, if you're listening to this, I don't feel like you need to go and like do a deep dive into trauma. I think it's enough to know that trauma was influencing what people were writing at, or may have been influencing what people were writing. It's a new field, trauma, tra trauma kind of literary theory is a new field, but it is worth considering. Um, okay, so what, what a, let me say a little bit about trauma uh, in general. Um, so think about um, entire parts of the Bible representing responses to group suffering. Consider the dislocation of identity that occurred under the, in these imperial situations of complete violence, sometimes sieges of cities uh, where people were literally being slarved. Um, one, a couple of definitions of trauma. Trauma as a distinct type of suffering that overwhelms a person's ability to cope. Trauma as an overwhelming, haunting experience of disaster. So explosive, and that word explosive is really important in its impact that it cannot be directly encountered and influences an individual or group's behavior and memory in indirect ways. And notice the, the memory part of that, all right? Uh, another understanding, this comes, out of, this comes from Judith Herman, who's done a lot in terms of um, the psychology of trauma. Traumatic events overwhelm the ordinary systems of care that give people a sense of control, connection, and meaning. And then I think it's also important to say that trauma is not just about the events and the situations. It's also about the way people survive, recover, and become resilient. So that's a part of also what when, when scholars are looking at these scriptures, they're also thinking about like what might have helped people survive in the, in the way that they're putting this narrative together. What, uh, what might have, what in terms of community cohesion might this text have facilitated? So it's not just about uh, there, you know, these gaps, these these places where we're, we realize something happened that can't maybe be discussed, but it's also about these texts help people survive. And where do you see that? And then I'll say there are, again, not a trauma therapist, but I want to name a couple of the particularly literary theorists when they're looking at texts that come out of uh, situations of violence and war. They think a lot about dissociation. They think a lot about fragmentation of memory. And in general, they think a lot about self-blame, right? As a way to create meaning, as a way to assert a sense of control. And folks who are reading texts that come out of those kinds of situations think a lot about like what's absent in the text, like what's not directly spoken of and is kind of behind the text. Where are there gaps? Where are there places of repetition and the like? So what I want to do, first of all, did that basic, basic summary make sense? And then I want us to actually look at some scriptures. Did that basically make sense? Okay. All right. So pretty simple. So let's look at some scriptures together real quick. So let's go with Psalm 37. I'm going to grab my Bible. I'm going to grab my good old NIV. And would somebody be willing to come on screen and just read that text? This is maybe one of the easiest texts to talk about when we're talking about um, the way trauma might have affected scripture. Psalm 137. I'll do it. Cool. Go for it, Chris. Thank you. 10 seconds, y'all. Just pulling up on my phone. Uh, By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we, when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there, our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, 
Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. All right. So that last verse, verse nine, is not necessarily one we tend to, you know, we don't sing that in our worship songs in church, right? This is a cursing psalm, an imprecatory psalm. Um, but it's helpful for me, I would say. I think it's a really helpful lens to think about what kind of situation creates that kind of poetry. Like what situation creates that? And then how does that help us to understand God? How does that help us to understand ourselves? Uh, at the beginning of this, I talked about um, the importance of, uh, for me of the image of scripture as an icon. So the idea that it's uh, a window, you look through it, you see God. It's also a mirror, you look and you see uh, yourself as well. Um, and so for me, I, I look at this and I think about that last part, like what does it teach us about ourselves? What does it teach us about what we're capable of in situations of deep violence when someone is violent toward us, a group is violent toward us? And I think uh, particularly for marginalized groups, like the very fact that some of this is embedded in scripture is actually a little bit hopeful. Because uh, I think when we realize sometimes that we have revenge fantasies, we realize like, yeah, when you're in situations of, tra of trauma, it's, it's pretty normal. Uh, you don't act on them, but it's pretty normal. Did that make sense? We're going to look at one more, uh, one more scripture, but did that make sense? Okay. When there's no feet, when I can't see you, I just don't know. <laughs> I just don't know what's happening. All right. So I'm going to ask one more time for somebody to read. Uh, come on screen and read if you would. So we're going to go with Isaiah 39 for another example of this. So we're going to go basically to the end of Isaiah 39. It's Isaiah 39, 5. And I'm going to ask whoever volunteers to read 39, 5 through the next chapter, 40, verse 5. I can do it, Tanita. Cool. Thank you. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought, there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Thank you so much, Christian. Yeah. So in this text, like at the end of um, Isaiah 39, 
you get this talk of being carried away to Babylon, right? And then when you get to, to chapter 40, you get this talk of comfort and of um, hard service being completed. But what is missing there is the actual exile. It's a huge, it's, it's as if, um, and you find this, if you, if you read through a lot of the Hebrew Bible, you'll find the, the exile, the Babylonian exile is not really very directly talked about in many places. Um, it's as if the writers are kind of looking sideways at it, hinting at it, noting that it um, is fundamental to, to how they're thinking about God and how they're thinking about themselves, but they very rarely actually talk about it. Um, and you can see that really clearly here in this jump. And these, these often, um, Isaiah 1 through 39 is called First Isaiah. So there are just generally very different characteristics in the second, the second part of Isaiah 40 um, and a little bit more. Um, but want to note that this is a good example of that. Uh, and then the, another thing that I want to just point out that, that I think is really helpful, and you see it even in this, this text here, um, is the idea of self-blame. I think one of the hardest things to talk about in terms of Hebrew scripture is the way in which um, whether it's Assyria or Babylon, the writers tend to say, this thing happened to us because God is punishing us. There are other, there are other reasons given, but the predominant one over and over is that God is punishing us, which if you think about that is pretty disturbing considering the amount of violence these people went through uh, at, it, you know, at, at, at different points. So I think, again, it's helpful to think about what does it mean to consider um, that perhaps part of what is influencing these folks is the need for a narrative that makes sense, that we understand that, you know, if, if we believe that we have gone astray in our worship, that is our fundamental problem, it gives us a way to solve that problem. Um, and then to be, um, yeah, to, to find more, to find healing. Now, that's not to say that, again, this is one lens. It is certainly not to say um, that we don't have to think about that at all, but most of us would say God punishing in that way is probably something that we struggle with. And I think that this is a helpful way to think about why it's so prevalent. Um, these are not middle-class Americans. They're, they're facing these situations of, of great harm. Um, and then I just wanna close this uh, with a quote and I'll, then we're gonna just have a little bit of discussion uh, in just a second. Let me share again. Yes, you're still there. Excellent. Um, all right, I'm going to read this one. Uh, this is just a summary quote that I hope helps us to, to bring these ideas together. Among the seemingly desperate elements of the biblical text that trauma hermeneutics illuminates are depictions of the behaviors and attitudes of Yahweh that seem violent and even abusive, especially when considered alongside, uh, alongside other biblical depictions that appear compassionate and merciful. A growing body of interpretation suggests that in many cases, representations of violence in the biblical text, including those attributed to divine agency, can be accurately understood as symbolic representations corresponding to actual violence experienced by survivors of trauma. Uh, and I won't read this. I'm just going to read the last line, uh, the last two lines. This observation has provided interpreters with a rationale for dismissing the conclusion that the texts accurately represent what is characteristic of God. 
In other words, trauma theory allows interpreters who otherwise might feel compelled simply to reject such imagery altogether to recognize within the images a limited beneficial utility. And I want to point that out again, because I think that these aren't texts that should be dismissed. I, I think that using this lens actually helps us think about how these texts actually are really important and need to be talked about more, like actually probably way more than they are. Can you do us the favor of putting putting those two slides in your own words and like yeah. really making clear the implications of this? Yes. Um, so I kind of want to do the discussion because I feel like if I Okay, do, yeah, no, that's fine. I, I, don't, I, I kind of want to know what y'all come away with and then... Um, I just feel like it's huge stuff, so I don't want it to... Yeah, I, I mean, I, for me, I think, particularly for communities that have been oppressed, I think thinking about generational trauma, thinking about how both reaction to traumatic events and surviving those traumatic events is part of what is inside our holy scriptures, I think is deeply, deeply powerful. Um, and I think for lots of people can be a source of hope. I want to stop there because I don't want to, I, I want to hear what other folks have to say. So here's what I want to, I'm, I'm going to read this and ask a question. Um, so this is David Carr. The embedding of survival of trauma into the Bible provides a partial answer. This is his perspective to why Jewish and Christian scriptures flourished when such when other imperial scriptures did not. The Jewish and Christian scriptures arose out of and speak to catastrophic human trauma. The Jewish and Christian scriptures arose out of and speak to catastrophic human trauma. So here's the question I want to ask. Oh, I didn't put the question. The question I want to ask is this, just what strikes you about that idea that, you know, the scriptures arose out of this and speak to trauma? And then how do you react to that possibility, um, that trauma and responses to trauma in it are embedded in scripture? Like, how does that affect your reading? What, what comes up in you when you consider those ideas? I said a lot of stuff. But I'm just curious, and you can enter this from any way you feel like you want to or need to. I like conversations that go places that are unexpected, so welcome. Okay, <laughs> what comes up in you? What do you think about this idea? Um, it, it's one lens, but what are your thoughts? I'm curious about um, what the what the author means by imperial scriptures, like if that is obviously like Hebrew scripture has a ton of different um, categories of like poetry and histories and stuff like that. And so it's, it's interesting to think of, you know, like is, is, would there be a, a history book of Roman history involved in their scriptures? I think is interesting to sort of consider. And I think, I mean, it, it makes sense that there is a, there's a comfort in reading that, there have always been really hard things happening and people have always gotten through them. I think um, that, yeah, that sort of resonates with me around sort of why the, the Hebrew and Christian scriptures might have stuck around a little bit better in terms of like, that's as much as we are, Erica is probably more similar to Rome than it is to occupied Israel under the, the Roman empire like there are still sort of relatable challenges that feel yeah like the the roman scripture or, or the the roman theology feels less 
relevant to me, I guess, than sort of the the struggles and overcoming of Hebrew scripture. Yeah. Yeah. And just consider that all of these powers, these empires, they had a perspective of the world of what brings peace. And often it was force that you use force to get to peace. Um, but in order to, 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 you know, to sustain that in the world, there were often sects of legitimate, I'll, I'll just call them like texts that legitimate, right? The empire, whether that, you know, texts that, that make it clear, this is the way it should be. Often that meant people at the top or the person at the top was considered a god. So that's, I think that's the, the meaning of this idea. These like texts that are clear that, okay, Caesar, uh, Caesar is God. Um, and all the kind, and it's not, they weren't just texts. You can find them on carvings and engravings and things like that. But it's all these things that were around to say, this is what is divine. And yet our set of scriptures are very different from that. They're not particularly triumphalist. Like they're not like, oh, we're, they, they have a lot of suffering and a lot of hard things in them. And one perspective is that that's actually why maybe they, have a certain gravity to them. I mean, I believe they're gods as well, but, but that's also like why maybe they have a certain staying powers because we all suffer. And particularly if you, you know, are, are part of a group that's, that's experienced this kind of like explosive, explosive event, then you can, you can find yourself here. Yeah. What else comes up in you? So the question is just what comes up in you when we talk about this? And, and again, I wanted to particularly talk about this when we when we moved into disarming bible bombs because it's something to have in the back of your mind it's just a, it's it's a tool in the toolkit what else comes up i don't know if anybody saw my face on camera when you read the quote um but my first reaction was like was oh really and then in my mind i had like almost in a row uh like the exodus reading from church this morning the crucifixion and the upper room all just slide in my head at once and like so it was kind of like oh no like wow like so I went from like huh I've never heard that before to holy cow and then having grown up in a denomination that does not read with that lens at all that is very used to power and like I was just it suddenly took me back to reflecting on my own like understanding of scripture and kind of understanding uh, almost like where suffer, suffering itself is meant to be triumphant was how I was taught to read it. Um, and like, this actually gives me a little bit more peace in reading scripture because it doesn't say that. Like it is not, like the point of it is not to be triumphant. The point is, is that everyone, like that, that everyone suffers, especially like you said, if we're in uh, communities that experience major things, um, and experience systematic things and so for me it was almost kind of a like a being presented with a new lens but also really challenging me on my own uh like past readings of scripture and like thinking about like well how many times have I just done the like sometimes what would be to me like the easy man's load of saying like oh well that had to happen because that was God's will like you know and just because we're all found salvation like cool like that suffering had to happen but that doesn't necessarily jive with real world reality like and so yeah i'm i'm struck i guess i hope any of this is i hope this is making sense but i'm i'm very i'm very struck by the the quote it's put me in an interesting place 
Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, what came to me is I uh, had an experience. Um, I lived in Indonesia during the time of the tsunami of 2004. So not the Japanese, you know, nuclear thing, but the one before that. The island we were on, island of Sumatra, I forget the numbers, 150,000, 170,000 people killed in an afternoon. Um, so we ended up up in that area trying to do relief work. But just seeing, like you're saying, a community that has been traumatized to that extent where who is there to help who? I mean, there's nobody there to help. I mean, your normal systems of, oh, you lost a child, we'll go help you. Everybody lost a child. Everybody lost, you know, you know what do we do? And just seeing people just needing to tell the story over and over again to anybody who would listen, just my pain is important. You need to hear it. I know everybody else is in pain, but my pain is important. And please, somebody listen to me tell my story. And just that focus on story needs to be there. And your eyes staying on yourself that, oh my gosh, you know, this is too much. I can't look what other people are dealing with. This is what I'm dealing with. And so that I think, yeah, I'm going to, it's going to help me. I think, you know, that you kind of put it in that context as I look at scripture, okay, think about the people of Aceh. What would, you know, how would they have described this experience and felt about this experience? And that could help me understand this inner anger, angst, storytelling kind of thing going on over over. So super helpful. Maybe one more person and uh, then I'll wrap up, pass it to Anthony. Anybody else have anything come up? Maybe something that hasn't been named that you want to share? I'll just wrap up and kind of answer Anthony's question. I I think that this, for me, has been a helpful tool. Again, not the only tool, but it's helpful for me to always have in the back of my mind. Because I, I often talk to folks who ask about, you know, we talk about grace and we talk about mercy, but they want to know too about how do we talk about accountability how do we talk about justice and how do we talk about what it means to actually be, to actually experience and go through things like generational trauma. Um, And so I think I feel deeply encouraged that there are, I mean, I would call them revenge fantasies, like in scripture. Like I feel like that for me feels very validating of the variety of experiences in the world that that's included. For me, just gives me more respect. It makes me feel like Scripture is even more something I can interact with because it, in that way, it's so human. It tells us about ourselves uh, and it draws us to God. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how I, I think about this. Like I kind of need that stuff to be in scripture. I'm not going to lie. On the hard days, I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to act on you, but I, I need that. I need to know that people before me have experienced it and they have found ways to survive it. Uh, and I think that's really helpful to include inside our spirituality, inside our, our discipleship. Okay. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, to attempt to summarize kind of what we've been up to for the past few weeks, we, you know, we wanted to remind everybody, everybody comes to scripture with a lens or a set of lenses. And I think good readings of scripture, one, name those lenses, and then two, decide what lenses you're going to put on. To pretend like I, 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 or my community, or my church, or my denomination, no, we're actually we're do, we we found the real meaning um, will lead to you know harmful ways, and you're just it, 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 that sort of viewpoint is a is a form of self delusion. Um, I think Christiane, uh, way back in the beginning of this course, you you brought up the question of what do we say to people who. Say, well, the Bible clearly says. And 
I think one, um, well, one, when somebody brings that up, that's probably a hint that a more nuanced conversation isn't in the cards that day. <laughs> um, because it's denying these lenses that we have to become aware of. Um, you take the conversation up one level, recognizing that people have said, the Bible clearly says, in contradictory ways, which therefore means that maybe that clarity isn't quite as uh, Windexy and uh, as we thought. Um, you know, the other thing I would say too to that whole idea of like the Bible clearly says is Jesus' own approach to this in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. And that sticks a big old stick of, uh, of uh, TNT, um, continuing with our Bible bomb analogy, uh, into the whole idea of the Bible clearly saying, well, the Bible clearly says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say unto you, love your enemies. Um, so this idea of a trauma-informed reading of Scripture is one of those lenses that we get to choose to put on. We now have language and, and vocabulary and communities of, of care that understand these concepts of trauma. And when we are like, mm, no, I'm not going to put that lens on today, then we are we're depriving ourselves of ways of understanding that we would not have otherwise. All right. So I want to take this <laughs> in a different direction. Um, in 1989, Weird Al Yankovic released a movie <laughs> called UHF, in which uh, his character is put in charge of a failing um, uh, public television uh, network. And so he has to come up with uh, content for it. And one of the most memorable clips for me from this ridiculous movie is uh, uh, a sequel for Gandhi called Gandhi 2. So I'd like to show you this sequel. Next week on U62. He's back. And this time, he's mad. Gandhi 2. No more Mr. Passive Resistance. He's out to kick some butt. This is one bad mother you don't want to mess with. Don't move, slime boy. He's a one-man wrecking crew. But he also knows how to party. Give me a stick, medium rare. There is only one law. His law. Gandhi 2. All right, so let's talk about the book of Revelation. <laughs> we have talked about <laughs> putting on lenses um, such as a Christ-centered cruciform lens of reading scripture. Stop laughing. <laughs> and we said, I said that a Christ form way of reading scripture ought to focus on the cross. <clears throat> it ought to focus on the, what we see as the voluntary self-sacrificing way of Jesus. It's others oriented way of love in Jesus. Um, but then we, <laughs> we, we are Ashley, we are, but then we, we read through scripture and we're like, wait a second. We've got these violent depictions of God in the Old Testament, or we have the book of Revelation, which, um, you know, I grew up with the Left Behind series. I, I devoured those novels as a teenager. 
And in the last book, um, Glorious Appearing, it was the the one with the white cover. Um, you have Jesus who shows up on the scene in the Battle of Armageddon, and as he speaks, like people's bodies are exploding. There's like a river of blood. Uh, and if you read the book of Revelation, there's all this, you know, reference to bloodshed and violence and, and rivers and all this kind of stuff. So the question is then, well, okay, if we're supposed to read it in this Christ-centered or cruciform or cross-centered way, um, does that therefore include that sort of violence that we see in the book of Revelation? And we see this, I see this in forms of, of Christian nationalism or, um, you know, go back to the founding of the United States or the quote-unquote discovery of the Americas and the doctrine of discovery uh, that says, hey, if we are going to enact God's kingdom here on earth, that's going to include the sword. It has to, and we are okay with that because that's what Israel did, and that's what Jesus is going to do in the future. And so we see Jesus, uh, or people who you know enact this sort of nationalism, see Jesus as Gandhi too. Like, yeah, Gandhi was great uh, in India working for peace and all of that sort of stuff. But when Gandhi comes back, aka when Jesus comes back, well, those methods aren't going to work anymore. Jesus's character will radically change or, you know, just go back to the violence that we see in the Hebrew scriptures uh, and be, you know, back to that God that we're used to. Uh, this is, you know, this is where theologies of violence and power and control come from. So what do we do with that? Um, well, I think, you know, we, we, we have to make a choice. If we see Jesus as the revelation of God's character, revealing things about God that we did not previously know, then that has to carry both backwards into the Old Testament of the Hebrew Scriptures and forwards into how we read things like uh, the book of Revelation. Second Thessalonians would be another example of this. Now, book of Revelation uh, actually has a bunch of um, hints in it about uh, the nonviolence and the nonviolent resistance of God. Uh, the fact that the answer to the world's problems is a lamb that was slain. The fact that when the uh, the lamb shows up uh, at the Battle of Armageddon, uh, riding a horse in, and uh, with a tattoo on his leg that says "Lord of Lords, King of Kings," and he's in a robe soaked with blood, the blood is his own blood. It's not the blood of his enemies. The fact that the sword by which the, that Jesus wields is not a sword of, of metal, it's a sword of words. And the fact that when Jesus is victorious, then what is the first thing that happens is that a garden is planted with trees along the river of life that are used for the healing of the nations. Now, all those things are there. They're sitting there in the book of Revelation for us to read. But if we've been influenced by violent depictions of the divine, then those tend to get swept under the rug. And instead we get, you know, Mark Driscoll is the one who described Jesus as a prize fighter with a, with a, you know, armed to the teeth. Reading backwards. Um, so I, I'm going to tell one of these stories, which if it were told to me, I would roll my eyes at it because I, the, 
I find these kinds of stories annoying, but it's about my three-year-old daughter who said something profound. And most of the time on Facebook or Twitter, if you see a story of like my three-year-old suggested world peace or whatever, like you probably know it's a lie. I promise you the story is true. Um, probably against better parent parental wisdom, we were reading through a, like a Bible story book and we got to the, the, the book or the story of the battle of Jericho. Uh, you know, and it's the, the story is walking around these walls seven times. You blow the trumpets, the walls fall down and everybody goes into the city and, and conquers the city. And, um, you know, all these people die and, you know, it's a children's story, but it still is getting across the idea that there is, there is some death and conquering going on. And, uh, again, uh, I would not, I would no longer recommend this as a great, uh, parenting technique into raising your children in the faith. You can introduce those stories later, not to a three-year-old, but you know, I, I, I had not thought it through that much when I was reading Audrey, this story, that was something that we had done a good job of, uh, in the years of parenting our three-year-old Audrey, uh, was being very, very clear about the person of Jesus, about Jesus as someone who created her, calls her good, um, who is, you know, love in, in bodily form, all these sorts of things. And that Jesus is in fact, God. So we'd been crystal clear about all these sorts of things. And then we started reading this Bible storybook that has the battle of Jericho. And so, you know, Audrey in, she was a very loquacious three-year-old and still is a very loquacious six-year-old asked like, you know, is that, did God do that? And I said, well, that's, that's what the story is trying to say. Yes. And she, she said like, well, but Jesus wouldn't do that. So I don't think God would do that. And that, you know, to me was this profound message of, oh, that's not a bad way to read scripture. <laughs> if Jesus wouldn't do it, maybe I shouldn't be so quick to put it into the mouth of God. So as we talk about disarming Bible bombs, that is my primary touchstone of, can I imagine Jesus doing it? Do I have evidence that Jesus behaved or thought or acted this way? And if I don't, then I need to put on a different lens, reinterpret, bend scripture towards um, the kind of character that God reveals in Christ. Uh, and that is, that's my responsibility as a Christian reader of scripture. Um, and uh, as we've tried to point out before, this sort of work was already being done before the birth of Jesus. We see this in the prophets. They are, that they too are rethinking their own origin stories uh, towards a God that says things like, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. They're rethinking their own origin stories, like in the book of Jeremiah that says, it never entered my mind uh, that you would uh, put together th this law. Um, they're rethinking their origin stories uh, in the opening of the book of Hosea that like, yeah, this violence that Elijah said was a great idea, I didn't, I think was not a great idea. Um, so this sort of rethinking is a feature of scripture and for someone to say, oh, no, 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 you can't, you're not allowed to do that. Um, then we're actually denying how scripture treats itself. Like part of the, the, the feature of this collection of stories is to always be, be willing to be reconfronted with the character of God and rethink think uh, what we thought before. That is part of what scripture is constantly doing. Uh, so the book of Revelation is 
I would argue, this deeply subversive text that, yeah, it absolutely is using the symbolism, uh, the language of empire that that John's readers would have known and understand, but turning it on its head. Yes, there's a sword, but the sword is God's word. Yes, there's blood, but it's the blood of a of a sacrificed lamb. Uh, yes, there's a, a city, uh, an imperial city that descends from heaven, which is very Roman-like language, but it's got a garden and leaves for the healing of the nations. It's not about conquering armies who go out and de-barbarian the world, but rather invite uh, all of the kings into, all of the nations into it, uh, because its gates shall never be shut. Like all of that language, which is the opposite of Roman language, but using Roman language in the meanwhile to communicate something. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's that's where I wanted to to kind of get us started. Um, I've got a list of some of the questions we've gotten over the weeks, and I'll be completely transparent. Um, like we didn't, I didn't prep a whole lot for this, and there was a reason for that. A couple of reasons. One. You could call it procrastination. I call it setting good boundaries <laughs> of like, you know what? You know, I've got, I've got, I've got a life to live. Uh, two, I think there can be a problem when like Bible answer man, Bible answer woman, Bible answer pastor can like enter into a space and like, Hey, you've got your question. Let me tell you the 16 different resources that uh, you can use to answer that question. Cool, but not actually all that helpful to like normal everyday people who have lives to live and they're not going to have you know, a, a freaking whole bunch of uh, commentaries all sitting on a shelf ready for them to devour. Like, that's not how normal people read scripture. So I wanted to be able to approach these kind of Q&A or Q, Q&R sorts of things with like, now, okay, if we just take some really basic principles of like, does it look and smell and, and, and seem like Jesus, maybe we can come up with some good answers. Um, so here we go. One of the questions is, what do you do with a verse or a passage that gives you a strong internal response? What tools can you bring to a passage like that without just backing off from it? Okay, so ask that again. When you run into a verse or a passage that brings up a strong internal response within you, what tools can we bring to that passage without just backing off? Um, so I'll say a couple things, and then Danetta, I'll let you say a couple things. First thing is like, I think it's important to name those internal feelings and emotions. Um, like we just talked about, like identifying the trauma that might be bringing up a strong response. Uh, and there's all sorts of versions of what this might be, you know, um, for the table church in particular and who we serve, um, like the LGBTQ uh, tr uh, clobber passages uh, that have been used to to hold uh, gay and queer people. Um, afar or to abuse or hurt them. Um, passages used to um, hurt people who have been like in harmful marriages or have gone through divorce. Uh, passages that have been used to justify um, various forms of uh, racism or, um, you know, keep people keeping power to themselves, all that sort of stuff. So when you run into a verse that's like, mm, this is bringing up something negative. I think it's, if you don't want to just back off from it, which is also a valid thing to do, is to name those feelings and emotions. To like say them out loud because like you don't need to be concerned or worried about embarrassing yourself in front of God. Um, I've talked to people who 
they're hesitant or they're shy about naming this passage or this verse makes me uncomfortable because God is kind of looking over their shoulder and is going to be disappointed with them if they say something like that. And I think that is the harm that a this is the literal word of God. And if you say something bad about it, you're going to hurt God's feelings. Like that's the harm that that kind of viewpoint can give because it makes us sear our consciences against things that we ought to be opening our consciences up to. And it also makes God into a bit of a fool of like, well, God, if you were smarter, then you would have figured out that this is bad stuff. Um, and then, so yeah, when you run into the verse, name, naming those feelings and, and emotions. And then back to this whole Jesus idea of if Jesus were to confront this passage, what would Jesus say to it? You've heard it said, but I say unto you. Um, and I think to me, and we're going to talk about this in a week or two, like this gets into some of those meditative um, or contemplative practices around scripture of, you know, even passages around like hell and um, things in the New Testament that make us uncomfortable to be willing to have a form of meditation that allows to sit with Jesus in those passages, um, to sit in God's presence and to open up our hurt or pain or trauma with God is a pretty good way to do it without just like intellectualizing it. Um, so that would, that's my kind of first instinct for that question of if you're running into a passage that's bringing up a strong internal response, don't just default this. And I'm preaching to myself here, friends. Don't just default to intellectualizing it. To know that you want to add anything. Yeah. Um, I guess a couple of things come up for me. Um, I think in the first session I talked about um, a couple of values that I really feel impo are important to bring to reading scripture, um, humility, patience, and love. Um, and I think the humility part, so after I've done what Anthony named and kind of held the feeling, I think for me, the humility part that for some reason, um, communities um, have been reflecting on this for generations. Uh, it is not figured out. It is open in some way is really helpful for me to remember that that part of it, like that. I don't have to solve it. I like to solve things. I don't have to solve the text. I don't have to wrestle the text to the ground. I can be humble. I can be patient and let it take time. Um, I think that's really important. Um, and then I often, if I'm totally honest, I also think a lot about the way in which, um, you know, I, I've, I've named this before. Like when I think about my ancestors and the, the, ver the version of Christianity they received, they were able to set that aside and say, I know something else is true. So I do think that there are moments um, to say, I'm going to set this aside. Um, now, obviously, that depends on how central. There are some verses you, you just, for your own self, you're like, I need to know what this means. I need to like have a some basic framework for understanding. But I think there are lots of verses that we can say, it's okay in this moment, in this season, to set this aside and come back to it. Um, and to, to, to not realize, to, to not feel like my faith, um, relies on answering every question. I think that that for me is really important because I really like studying this thing, but there are just so many questions that I have, if I don't release some of that control. And as Anthony said, enter into that more, that, that mystical place of letting go, then I would, I would probably be driven a little crazy. Any conversation around that idea of what to do when you run into a 
troublesome passage or passage that gives a strong response. All right, let's get into a more kind of concrete example. Um, we've we've talked around some of the the Canaanite conquest or genocide language, and I'm not going to pretend that I'm going to answer this for you in like seven minutes. But hopefully by now you would get a notion of where I might go with this. Um, what I am willing to say now. How do I? I don't want to caveat this a thousand different ways, but I want to say a couple foundational things. I still hold scripture as a deeply authoritative place in my life. Um, I have changed a lot of the words that I use around it. Um, I no longer use a word like inerrant um, because I think that's squeezing scripture into something it was not meant to be. Um, And I'm less likely to call scripture the word of God. Um, because that phrase, the word of God, uh, is used in reference to Jesus, uh, not this thing called the Bible, which didn't actually exist in this form when uh, the New Testament was written, and uh, even when the Hebrew te- Hebrew Bible was written, didn't fully exist. The word of God, uh, to quote Brad Jerzak, the, the word of God um, is perfect and inerrant, and when he was a teenager, he grew a beard. Follow me? Um, but this collection of stories, scripture, testimony about people's experience with God, a community of saints that out, uh, is pre-exist me and will outlast me has held it in high regard. And I am not willing to cast that aside. I think there is something worth paying attention to, paying attention to when a community of people, um, who for the most part, throughout history, throughout the ages, have lived with far less privilege, far less comfort than I have. I think it's there's something to that that's not worth casting aside. So scripture tells me things about God and the world and myself that I would not otherwise know. Okay. That said, what I'm not willing to say is that every time someone says, thus saith the Lord, they knew what they were talking about. I'm not willing to go that far. I think possibly they were doing the best they could at the time. Um, And I think oftentimes they are clicking humanity's understanding of the divine forward in ways that were necessary for someone who lived three, two, one thousand years ago. Um, But just because they say, thus saith the Lord, I don't take it for granted that it is a perfect representation of what God is actually like. So when someone says, God needs you to go and conquer this people and slaughter every man, woman, and child, my response to that is, um, did God really say that? Yes. Somebody really believed that God said that. (laughs) That's my response. Someone really thought that that's what God was like. And uh, And they acted on that. Now, I see all sorts of testimony throughout the Hebrew scriptures that does click people's understanding of the divine and what the world ought to be like forward in significant ways. Um, You read some passages in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy about how to treat slaves or how to treat uh, female captives, and you see some like 
pretty horrific stuff by modern standards, but by the standards of like the Egyptian empire or the Assyrian empire, there is significant movement towards what we would call liberation and justice. Is it perfect? Jeez, no. <laughs> but it is, from an ancient person's perspective, moving forward. Um, the whole concept of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, um, tex leoni is what it was called, of how to administer justice in Israel. We see that as pretty brutal. We're like, well, if you got someone's eye out, well, then you need to have your eye taken out. Uh, we see that as fairly brutal way of dealing out justice. But from an ancient person's perspective, that was a limiting way of handing out justice. Uh, if you compare it to like the Babylonian law at the time, um, then you would have this escalation of of crime and punishment. Oh, you cut off someone's hand, we're going to cut off your legs and your arms. And so then Israel's law comes along and says, you cut off someone's hand, then we will cut off your hand. Now, Jesus comes along a little bit later and says, you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I say unto you, love your enemies. And this is moving our understanding, clicking it forward in new ways. So Canaanite conquest, the, the conquering of Canaan, Joshua, Judges, and all those sorts of things, I think people really believe that God was moving them towards violence. But I can't believe that that was what God was actually doing. I think God's spirit did break through in significant ways in limiting violence. Uh, I think God's spirit did reveal God's self in significant ways in cre creating new systems of um, law and ethics that had not been experienced before. But it was not, I'm willing to say, the perfect revelation of what God desired for people. Now, why is that? Why didn't God just say, hey, hey. Why do this right thing? Well, a couple of responses. One, maybe God did, and people were just like, no, that can't be God. <laughs> um, or, you know, there's the very kind of pragmatic way of understanding this of, um, you know, even today, we've got these idealistic ways of, that we'd like to set up the world. But just because we have these idealistic notions doesn't mean that you can just implement them immediately. And so I wonder, you know, how does God communicate truth to, not just ancient people, but to us as well, in a way that we are able to digest it and understand it. Um, you go, you know, 3,000 years ago and explain something like a peace treaty to an ancient people, they're not going to understand that. You go to us today, you and, you know, go, go, to, go over to Russia and Ukraine. Those are a bunch of modern folks with modern understandings of the world and try to explain something like human rights to somebody like Putin. They don't understand. <laughs> so that's the idea of progressive revelation that, yes, there is this ultimate truth that God is moving us towards. How does God sort of dish it out piece by piece in a way that humanity can understand? Um, so Canaanite conquest, I'm very willing to say, no, if, if that doesn't smell like Jesus to me, I don't think that's what Jesus desired for God's people. But God is a redemptive God who will use even violent people like Israel. And as the prophet Amos said, like God was also working in the lives of the Egyptians and God was also working in the lives of the Philistines and God was also working in the lives of the Ethiopians. Like God was doing all of this work um, and some of it got garbled and misunderstood, much of it probably. Uh, and then Jesus shows up and becomes the word of God made flesh.
Response, commentary, Jeanette, you want to push back or add anything? Um, yeah, I would. I, I think one of the things um, that always strikes me about the conquest narratives, um, and again, this is not going to solve it, solve something, but it it often drives me to my knees in prayer. Um, that if you read, you know, any like most scholars, archaeologists, people like this who study such things would note that the way that genocide is described in these verses did not happen on the scale that it's described. Like it's not, um, how do I, how do I say that? Um, yeah. I mean, it, it historically did not happen. Now that doesn't matter in, in some, it, it matters, but it, the rhetorical impact is still there. Um, but it, it drives me to my knees because it makes me think a lot about, um, what the the need like why was there a need to write this in um to write about this to talk about the promised land in these kinds of ways this this land and this people that needed to be conquered that needed to be erased like what was rising in people that that is what they heard or thought they heard of god um so that that is not an answer but it does it makes me do more than pause uh, <laughs> to know that historically did not happen in this way, and yet it's it's included. Um, it draws me draws me a lot into wonder about the human condition. That's that's all I have for that. <laughs> well, and I think that does get into our, like our trauma and informed reading of scripture. Of scripture uh, is most often written from below, from a people group that is experiencing deep amounts of harm. And if they are being, if they're able to tell stories to each other about a God who liberates, about a God who is on their side, the God of the angel armies, the Lord of hosts, who is the conquering warrior God. I mean, that's powerful stuff. That is absolutely the sorts of stories that I wouldn't want to, would want to pass on to my children about Yahweh, this God who brought us out of Egypt, who it, like those are the kinds of stories I would want to be able to tell. And so from that perspective, written from below, written from uh, people who has continually been under somebody's thumb, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to be I'm going to love those kinds of stories. And there is something true about them about a God who conquers and is a warrior and is is on our side. Um, there's something worth gleaning from them. And this is what the 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 church, uh, the ancient church was doing with these sorts of stories of they would allegorize them of just as God was the God who, you know, conquered, um, so does God conquer our sin, those sorts of things. What are you going to say to yeah, I was just going to add, I, I think, um, so I dream of doing a series out of Revelation that is a much better, like a sermon series that is a much better version of the stuff I got growing up. Can we start with I, Gandhi too? Is that okay? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Woo, my mother will find me in North Carolina and come up here. Like, <laughs> what kind of church is this? Um, so I love Revelation though, because for me, it expresses through this, this kind of kaleidoscopic imagery, it expresses uh, to a people on the bottom, just as you're saying, Anthony, this, it, it, it says essentially, we will win. And while 
I understand that that could be that kind of that can be a little bit problematic long term. I understand like the psychic impulse of a people to say, like, can we win at some point? Can we have victory somewhere? And I just it just feels so deeply uh, not that not the blood mass, but the, you know, like, like so deeply hopeful and just uh, of like the way in which, the, again, the scriptures speak to us as full embodied people. Um, and I think lots of the, the, the folks who are putting together revolution are acknowledging like, yeah, that we, we, we need to win. Like we need to have a sense that this goes our way at some point. Um, so yeah, that goes back to what you're saying about the warrior God a bit, Anthony. Yeah. I want to throw one <laughs> at the risk of proof texting, uh, of saying the Bible clearly says, I want to throw one verse in the chat First Corinthians 10, seven. Paul says, now these things, he's talking about the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So Paul, which remember, is himself a Jew, uh, is throwing his own history somewhat under the bus of, yes, these things were an examples of what not to do, of what not to be like. Um, and that, so uh, one of the, one of the Q&A questions was about the story of uh, Jephthah's daughter. Uh, and to recap that real quick, uh, there's a story in uh, the book of Judges, chapter 11, where Jephthah is one of the judges who is conquering on behalf of Israel and stands up to the enemies of Israel. And he makes this foolish vow uh, that the first thing that comes out of his door, uh, he's going to sacrifice to to God. And for a modern person, it's like, well, obviously it's going to be your family, right? Like, no, you would have in the center of your home, you might have like some livestock and some feed for them. So Jephthah's mind is thinking first animal, but he doesn't say that. He says, first thing that comes out of my door, which would most likely be an animal, I'm going to sacrifice to Yahweh. He gets home and it's his daughter and read Judges 11. It's deeply problematic because it emphasized the fact that she's never been married and she's a virgin. And what a shame that we have to sacrifice a virgin. Um, and so there, like there are some real bad sermons about Judges 11 and Jephthah's daughter about how Jephthah makes this foolish vow, uh, but needs to remain faithful to it, that he must sacrifice his daughter and that his, the, the needing to keep this vow to God ranks higher than the life of a woman. And you could, I suppose, read the scripture in that way. Well, see, it says right there in Judges 11, he sacrifices a daughter. We must rank our vows to God more important than life itself. But then actually Jesus comes around and preaches to the Pharisees of like, you will use Bible verses to keep um, care away from your own parents in the name of religious scrupulousness. But you have forgotten the more important things of the law. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So I think that's where Paul is coming along in 1 Corinthians 10 and saying, these things have occurred as examples of what not to do. <laughs> now, not all of the Old Testament, again, you, like this is not an either or. Do not fall into like a black and white either or trap that the Hebrew scripture is all bad. That is not what we're saying. The Hebrew scripture reveals true things about God and God's people and the world that we would not otherwise know, but it was composed by people who were wrestling. It's the, where the word Israel comes from wrestling with their experience with God and continually growing in that knowledge. That's why we have inner Hebrew scripture, inner testament, to mental debate about what God is like, 
about why there is evil in the world. Um, and so to to say, well, the Bible clearly says about anything ignores this feature of scripture, which contains multitudes. Yeah, I'll just name two that I uh, often have encountered in spaces that uh, impulse to kind of throw parts of scripture away, which to me feels different from setting it aside. Um, and I, I, I think um, it's always important to remember, and this is what I believe, that scripture is for the purpose of formation. And formation, I think pretty much anything in scripture we can reflect on and be formed by and formed, perhaps, as Anthony's saying, not to do, okay, <laughs> go in the exact opposite direction. But I think it's, it's, it allows us to enter into scripture contemplatively with deep expectation, deep love, deep hope, also recognizing that formation is both positive and, you know, it, it's forming us toward and forming us away from as well. Any thoughts, probably not, before we move forward to anything else? Um, you know, for me, um, I think it's been a process that I have to kind of like, um, you know, being introduced to these various lenses of, of approaching scripture has, has really been helpful because I was, I was taught for many years to take it literally. Um, so, you know, I was the one that brought up the question about Jephthah's daughter and the reading of that scripture. And I always knew that, you know, you're supposed to kind of approach judges in the sense that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Um, and I kind of in myself read myself into that scripture in the sense of I'm making this vow to God that I'm not going to do something mm. and I have to stick with it. <laughs> you know, I have to, you know, um, make myself come under that vow. And when it was, you know, causing me depression, causing me harm, causing me hurt, um, but then I realized I'm not supposed to do that, <laughs> you know, um, and, and to really, you know, as, as you said, Tanetta, like, you know, understand that I'm to sometimes read, you know, away from a lot of those things and not cling to the Bible so literally. So I'm still kind of in that process of, you know, not taking it literally and, and pulling back and, and kind of examining what lens am I reading this scripture from? and how I am supposed to approach it um, in community and with, with a community of people. Oh, that's gorgeous. Thank you for telling us that. And like, yeah, putting yourself in that context. Yeah, one more, one more passage, um, which I think just is so uh, shows a lot of how scripture is used today. This is Matthew 23. Jesus says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint and dill and cumin. You've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now, here's the challenge part, okay? You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So, you know, the, the, the thing that often gets thrown in my face when talking about reading scripture like this, well, you're just trying to make the Bible say what you want it to say. Listen. To follow the way of Jesus does not equal a happy, easy, wonderful, comfortable life. Because if I take seriously the claims of Jesus, loving enemies, praying for those who persecute you, and a others-oriented form of love, if I somehow only interpret scripture that it makes my life more comfortable, I've done some, I've gone astray. <laughs> so that's what Jesus means here. Uh, you, you have neglected these more important 
matters, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. If I'm sacrificing daughters, I've missed it. If I've sacrificed my family or people who I love in the name of keeping the law, I've missed it. So yeah, keep my promises to God, but not if I'm neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness, it was a bad promise. <laughs> All right. Mm. <laughs> Getting fired up. Okay. Uh, one more thing. We'll talk about divorce. <laughs> Light topic to close on. Here's the key thing to think about divorce. Uh, particularly the, thinking about the Jesus and divorce passages, but I, I'll touch on Paul's divorce passage real quick too. When Jesus is asked about divorce, in the context of the Greco-Roman and Jewish world, what's primarily being talked about is this question, how much can I treat women like property? That's the primary question behind the question. Now, historical to be in the, for the sake of historical accuracy it was possible for women to initiate divorce okay so if you hear you know it was only men who could divorce women that's not entirely accurate however again trying to avoid this black and white either or thinking however it was primarily men who could initiate divorce and marriage was seen not as a romantic commitment but rather as the trading of property. You can marry my daughter if you give me a good enough dowry. So the divorce question was, to what extent can I treat women as property? What, under what grounds can I initiate a divorce? Which then gives us the logic or reasoning around why Jesus's response is so vitriolic. You don't. You don't treat women like property. What God has put together in the context of marriage, no one should separate because you're tr it, when you attempt to do that, you're treating women as if they are a sheep that you can trade off. So, of course, Jesus's words against divorce are pretty darn harsh. The black, deep, ugly irony in a modern world is to use those passages which Jesus is using to liberate women and protect them from harm is when those same passages are used today to, to keep anybody, women or men or anybody, in a harmful relationship in which they will continue to experience harm. Um, so, you know, even if you're being abused, many, many, many pastors will say, even if you're being abused, you have to stay in the marriage. Well, now we've turned the intention of Jesus's words up on their head. What Jesus was using to protect women is now being used to keep anybody in a harmful relationship in harm's way. To which then, I'll turn to Paul, and this is 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul is answering a bunch of questions around marriage and divorce and how to handle it in terms of maybe somebody became a Christian and somebody's not. What do you do then? What happens if uh, there is abandonment in the marriage? What happens then? So 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. If the unbelieving spouse leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound to marriage in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Okay, lots of key phrases in this verse. 
Number one is the phrase, in such circumstances. Now, there's a theologian by the name of Wayne Grudem. He is a Reformed uh, Baptist theologian, many um, like undergrad theology students are made to read his systematic theology. He's a big deal, even if you've never heard of him. Um, but he comes down pretty conservatively in most things. He flip-flopped on supporting Trump. He's kind of the theologian behind John Piper. Um, I'm not a fan. But I say all that to say this. For decades, Wayne Grudem said that he was one of these theologians that said that you cannot divorce somebody in the context of um, abuse. You can only have a divorce in the case of um, adultery, infidelity, or um, uh, abandonment. He changed his mind, which proved to me that God is still active and working in the world. And he changed his mind based on this phrase, in such circumstances. Again, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. If the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. And what Grudem, this theologian and Greek scholar, figured out is that um, in such circumstances is this phrase that means in varying in other similar or adjacent circumstances. So it was doing this phrase in such circumstances actually opened up the door for there's actually maybe other reasons why divorce might be a valid option. The other theological way of re reading this is the next phrase. God has called us to live in peace. So here we're back to a hermeneutical lens. Paul is giving a logic as to why or when divorce should or should not happen. And his hermeneutical lens, the linchpin of how he understands this is God has called us to live in peace. So if you're trying to make a decision around um, what am I supposed to do in my relationships, with my job, with um, how to li live with other people all that sort of thing. There's your, there's your key phrase. God has called us to live in peace. For many marriages, the idea of sticking together is not going to lead to peace. It will lead only to further trauma, harm, um, shame, abuse, etc. There's your hermeneutical lens. Um, so back to Jesus, when Jesus says, let God has put together, let no man separate, that's where I might be willing to permit a, a gender-specific pronoun there of, um, yeah, don't treat people like property. And if the way that we are setting up our relationships, and I think this is a good sexual ethic in general, the way that we set up our relationships is a way of objectifying or dehumanizing others, then we're, we've missed it. We've failed. Um, I'm quoting an article here. In other words, this kind of statement, the idea that divorce is never a biblical option, prioritizes an interpretation of a small selection of Bible verses over all contradictory evidence from people's experience. And this is done in no regard with the fact that humanity can only learn about God through our lived experience of him working in our lives. The Bible is not a magic book of knowledge that tells us what we need to know about God. It is a witness statement from a collection of different people across generations to say what God did in their lives and therefore what they learned about him. It's given as a gift to us so that if, for example, we didn't live face-to-face -face with Jesus, we can still know about God's presence and work through him. 
Yes, the Bible is important and unique, but to ignore how God reveals himself to us in our lived experience is to undermine the Bible altogether. The Bible was only written out of people's lived experience. I get that the Bible is a complicated book, but being biblical isn't a free pass for our choices. Um, And here is the link to that article. Uh, and what I love about this is this this is written by a fairly conservative person, more conservative than I would identify, but they they get something crucial about how scripture is read. Scripture is a witness statement, not a magic book. All right, friends, that takes us to 303. Thanks for sticking sticking it out with us. Any final words before we go? This is very helpful. <laughs> Glad to hear. Yeah, thank you. All right. Tanetta, can you pray a blessing for us? Sure. Lord, you call us to hard things. And yet, Lord, you form us often in the searching, the journeying, the waiting, the being patient, the pursuing. Lord, as we read scripture, may we enter into the grace of mystery and hope. And may we become more like you and more like ourselves. Please help us to rest this day. Please draw us more deeply um, into the reading of your word. Lord, I just pray that for every person uh, on this call, that uh, this series would be embedded in their hearts in ways that bring life and create flourishing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody.